Frank Abagnale was a pilot, doctor, lawyer, and professor, or at least he pretended to be. People commonly know him as the inspiration for the movie Catch Me If You Can. His story of scamming and deceit is commonly known and is so out there that some speculate it can't be true. Is it possible that Frank actually lied his way through much of his early adult life without getting caught? Or is Frank still conning us to this day? Hello everyone, and welcome to Multilevel Mondays. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Frank Abagnale. Frank allegedly conned corporations, mainly Pan Am Airlines, out of millions of dollars back in the 1960s and 70s. In those days, it wasn't easy to scam people with fake checks either. You needed a Heidelberg printed press. You had to be a skilled printer. You had to understand color separations. Now, you pretty much just need a working internet connection. Scams are far easier today in many ways, but Frank made it look easy decades ago too. With just a few printing tricks and forgeries, Frank raked in $2.5 million from bad checks, which would be about $18.5 million today. He had free travel all over the world and he was able to switch from respectable jobs like doctor to lawyer to professor. His story has been told a variety of times in the media from movies featuring Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio to his best-selling book called Catch Me If You Can. And to clarify, both the book and the movie are called Catch Me If You Can, sorry. Frank managed to be anything he ever wanted. Well, sort of. At least that's how he tells his story. There are, however, two very different sides to the tale, the side that Frank tells and reality. So much of what Frank has presented to the world has only recently been revealed to be exaggerated or in some cases, downright falsehood. So yeah, the con man who might be conning us about his own past. But for now, let's start with the more well-known story, Frank's story. I'd like to cash this check here and then I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. My name is Mr. Abignale. That's Abignale, not Abignali, not Abignali, but Abignale. FBI, come out of the bathroom. Drop it! Relax, you're late, all right? My name's Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has- Frank Abagnale was born on April 27, 1948 in Bronxville, New York. His parents, Paulette and Frank Sr. were initially very much in love, but Frank Sr. spent extensive time away from his family to become involved in local Republican politics. Paulette left him and Frank Jr. decided to stay with his father, learning about white collar transactions along the way. In Frank Jr.'s book, he says that he never regretted his decision to live with his father, although dad probably did as his son turned out to be a troublemaker. Frank wrote, I was fascinated by my dad's associates, friends, and acquaintances. They ranged the gamut from the Bronx social stratum, ward healers, cops, union bosses, business executives, truckers, contractors, stockbrokers, clerks, cabbies, and promotees. The whole smear. After hanging out with dad for six months, I was streetwise and about five eighths smart, which is not exactly the kind of education dad had in mind for me. Around this time, Frank started hanging out with what he described as loose end kids because he thought that if he got enough attention and acted like a juvenile delinquent, it would probably provide a common ground for his parents to reconcile. It started off with swiping candy and sneaking into movies or just playing hooky from school. Then it escalated to stealing a car from a driveway while the owner was watering his lawn. Yet Frank's father was always able to get him off the hook. He'd tell his son to start thinking like a man without any mention of consequences. And so Frank got worse. In these mid teenage years, Frank said his reasoning and rational thinking was eclipsed by women. 
His description is pretty creepy as he says, I went on girl scouting forays at sunrise. I went out at night and looked for them with a flashlight. Don Juan had only a mild case of the hots compared to me. And I'm just hoping this is exaggerating for storytelling's sake, but I, I don't know. But moving on, after Frank says some especially cringy and kind of weird stuff about women, he explains that it was the desire to impress that pushed him to commit his first crime. As a teenager, he asked his dad for a gas credit card and promised not to go overboard. His father obliged as long as Frank agreed to pay the bill each month when it came in. But Frank really wanted to drive around and impress women and he needed cash to do it. So he came to an agreement with a friend and a gas station owner. He charged new tires to the credit card for $160, but instead of taking the tires, the owner would give him $100 cash instead. My cleverness overwhelmed me, Frank said, and he started using the gas card to buy gas batteries, gas, oil, and a ton of other car accessories when in actuality, the gas stations gave him cash. Frank claimed that it hadn't occurred to him that his father would be the patsy, which I'm not sure I believe. Earlier in his book, Frank claims the first gas station owner he spoke to knew about Frank's father and asked what his dad would think. It seems like Frank didn't really care as he managed to spend over $3,400 on the card for 14 sets of tires and 22 batteries and an obscene amount of oil and gas. An agent for mobile actually sought out Frank's father to tell him all this. And when Frank had to explain himself, he said, it's the girl's dad. They make me do funny things. I can't explain it. Yet Frank's father actually forgave him for this and just said, don't worry about it, boy. Einstein couldn't explain it either. His mother, on the other hand, was furious. She supposedly put him in a Catholic private school since she still had legal custody of Frank and could decide what happened to him in terms of schooling and the like. But Frank didn't stick around. And at 16 years old, he left home to find himself. As a 16 year old high school dropout, things weren't easy. Even though he found work in the stationary business since his father worked in stationary and he had the experience, he was earning $60 a week in 1964. And that would be about $550 today. Needless to say, it was not enough to live off of. So Frank returned to scamming. According to him, the reason he was earning so little is because he was a boy and a boy simple wasn't worth a man's wages. So he aged 10 years overnight by forging his driver's license. Instead of being born in 1948, Frank changed it to 38. And seemingly by all accounts, though mostly his own, he did a good job of fooling people. Even back when he'd been scamming people at mobile stations, they always thought he was older or in his 20s. Might as well take advantage of that, right? Instead of earning $1.50 an hour, he was earning $2.75 at a new job as a truck driver's helper. Unfortunately, that's where Frank peaked as employers told him it wasn't just Frank's age that held him back, but his lack of education. Plus the women Frank pursued were, well, let me just use Frank's words. Any horse player can tell you that the surest way to stay broke is playing the fillies. The girls I was romancing were all running fillies and they were costing me a bundle. So Frank needed more money to appease these running fillies and later adding that New York has more beautiful chicks than a poultry farm. But there's a lot to unpack with his attitude towards women in this book. So we're just gonna move on. Maybe that's just, I don't know, the way you used to talk. Maybe that's the way, I I don't know. I don't know, don't like it, but I'm just gonna move on. At first, Frank overdrew from his bank account and wrote bad checks, telling himself that if people were stupid enough to cash a check without verifying its validity, they deserved to be swindled. Plus, Frank figured his dad would cover him and he was still only a 16 year old kid. He made plenty of excuses for himself as Frank fully admits. But once he came to terms with the fact that he was a crook writing bad checks, he figured he'd might as well take it a step further and use his confidence for something even better. 
Frank scams grew and the boy that once said he could do anything he wanted decided he was gonna be a pilot. And, and what about those ID badges that I've uh, seen pilots wear? Well, every pilot has to have two things with him at all times. One is his airline personnel badge, looks just like this one here from Pan Am. The other one is their FAA license. Hey, do you think I can make a copy of this to put into my article? Oh, Frank, you can have that one. It's three years expired. Oh, thanks. And what about your ID badge? Do you have an extra one I could borrow? Oh, no, I can't help you there. It's a special order from Polaroid. The only way to get one of those is become a real live pilot for Pan American Airways. Are you a real live pilot? I sure am, little lady. What's your name? Celine. Celine, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you too. Frank graduated from petty crime to downright fraud. Confidence was key and he had plenty of it. Apparently, all it took was calling someone in Pan Am's purchasing department and saying that his uniform was stolen to get a replacement. Frank, now Robert Black, got a brand new uniform for the day, claiming to be a co-pilot and gave the uniform company a fake payroll number so they could bill the uniform to him that way. Of course, Frank didn't really know all about airline terms and what he could do with this newfound identity, so he started calling up the company and posing as someone interested in becoming a pilot. It was this way that Frank learned about deadheading. Essentially, this means if you're a pilot, you can fly for free, either by occupying an empty passenger seat or riding in a jump seat. It's important to recognize that Frank was not actually piloting these planes in any capacity, though he was scamming the airline and essentially just traveling the world for free. Frank also describes the process of how he faked his license, once again, by just forging documents using some correct information mixed in, like his social security number, and having a ton of confidence when he presented the info to others. He also brags about sleeping with stewardesses, learning the casual language of pilots and bars, and continuing to write bum checks, checks without enough money in the bank account to cash them. Frank was living the high life, taking advantage of the respect given to pilots. At the very least, he certainly did a great job exposing just how lax or non-existent the watchdog procedures were though. If you've seen my other episodes on Pan Am and other airlines, you'll know that in the early days of airlines, hijackings and other various crimes were surprisingly common and at times even casual. Today, pretending to be a co-pilot sounds incredibly difficult, if not impossible, with the enormous checks and balances in place. But 50 years ago, it doesn't seem like that was the case. Frank did eventually get caught though, kind of. Sheriff's officers pulled Frank aside one day for questioning, but the 17-year-old did not back down. The deputies were polite, but Frank, as he wrote in his memoir, claims that he slapped his phony ID and FAA license on their desk with righteous indignation, demanding to know who the officers worked for. They were uncomfortable and had detained him and according to Frank, gave the impression they just arrested the president for jaywalking. Because of Frank hanging around other pilots in an airport so often, he was able to speak the airline language, tell them what kind of planes he flew, crack some airline jokes, and make the officers question if they even had the right man. He gave them the names of other pilots and stewardesses who actually told the FBI that Frank was legit and they let him go. Still, Frank had apparently gotten tired of this lie and decided to move to Riverbend near Atlanta. When he was applying for a one bedroom unit, Frank made up a new job. He was a doctor now. Frank wasn't the only doctor in his new building because as it turns out, Dr. Willis Granger, chief president pediatrician at the Smithers Pediatric Institute and General Hospital in Marietta introduced himself to Frank who had been telling everyone around the building that he was a pediatrician. You'd think that Frank would be caught in the lie face to face with an actual doctor, but Frank's confidence and quick answering got him out of trouble here too. Frank actually went to the library and started reading medical journals and books by pediatricians, getting a broad enough knowledge to carry him through conversations. In the time it took him to study all that, maybe he could have gotten a genuine job or found a way to make an earnest living, but hey, I guess, you know, this life was more exciting. 
Now with Granger at his side, Frank looked like he belonged despite being only 18 years old, which is just impressive. Here, Frank spends yet another couple paragraphs describing women as ripe and tantalizing. So, but let's move on. It supposedly didn't take long before the hospital administrator, John Coulter, offered Frank a job covering some late night shifts, midnight to 8 a.m. Frank used the excuse that he didn't have a license to practice medicine in Georgia, but Coulter said he wasn't asking him to treat anyone, just to be a stand-in that would be available for emergencies. Plus, Coulter argued that if Frank had a California license, that worked just as well because California standards were accepted by their practice. Frank actually agreed, faking his way into becoming an actual doctor. It's one thing to bum some free rides off planes and lie to the FBI, but now lives were absolutely at risk here. Uh, but Frank seemed a little you know, too busy hitting on nurses to care. Sure enough though, an emergency did happen because believe it or not, emergencies can happen from midnight to 8 a.m. in a hospital. Frank alleges that he just let the interns handle the situation for the most part until he was needed in aiding a birth. The baby was blue from lack of oxygen or a congenital heart defect, which shook Frank so deeply. Finally, he realized that a child could die as a result of his impersonation and he stopped pretending to be a doctor. However, he needed a new scam. Now he's been a pilot and a doctor. So what's next? Well, you guessed it, a lawyer. Frank started telling people he had a Harvard law degree and was a friend of a friend who had recommended him for a job. Getting a transcript was no problem for Frank either. He asked a good friend of theirs to go to a print shop to get one made and even place a Harvard seal on it. Then came the bar examination. Even Frank couldn't fake this. And on his first two tries, he flunked. But after a few months of tutoring, he was able to pass it on his third attempt and get his certificate in the mail. And it just, that sounds insane to me, but hey, I mean, what do I say to this? (laughs) Wow, I don't think I'm allowed to say that. It sounds like I, I'm not applauding this for the record, but it's just, it's really fascinating. Now, Frank claims that he was just an errand boy at a law firm for nine months and not really trying to take any cases before he got bored of this role too. So what did he do next? Fake another transcript, lie about his previous employment and became a professor of sociology in Utah. He studied the textbooks he was meant to teach from and taught for one semester before heading back to California. Frank had worn so many hats at this point, done so many fantastical things that it just seemed like he was tired of hiding from his true self, a scammer. Back in California, he ordered a book of blank counter checks and made them look like Pan Am expense checks. Pretending to be a pilot once again, he started cashing them and dressed like a pilot, the tellers didn't seem to question his credibility. Interestingly enough, when Frank was certain he'd been caught, he then pretended to be an FBI agent sent to retrieve a bogus check from the bank. The search for him was apparently never ending and he eluded government officials for years. The underworld grapevine simply had no intelligence on me as he put it. Frank also claims that he made a woman named Rosalie slept with her and he explains that he felt bad for taking her virginity and I guess, and then he promised to marry her. When he confessed his crimes to her and explained that he was only 19, Rosalie called the police. Frank needed to get out of town again. So he flew to Vegas for yet another fresh start. Once more, he was using phony Pan Am checks, walking into casinos with them, traveling across the US and having the time of his life. He moved to Chicago a little while later and pulled off one of his largest scams mentioned thus far. Frank explains that at the bank where he created a checking account, the lower left-hand corner of the deposit slips are meant for the depositor's account number. They aren't necessary, but if the number is filled in, the money on the slip is automatically credited to that account number. The number is the default, otherwise the address is used. So Frank pocketed a bunch of deposit slips and filled out the account number portion with his own account number. Within a day, over $42,000 were deposited into his account. 
Then Frank withdrew $40,000 claiming that he was buying a home and then left with significantly fatter pockets. In 1967, he supposedly had half a million dollars in cash to his name and he was just traveling the world, continuing to scam people. But it didn't last. Two Massachusetts state troopers finally caught Frank, insisting that they knew his real name was Frank Abagnale and that he was faking being a pilot. He was able to write a check, bail himself out and continue running similar Pan Am scams. A little while after this, Frank decided he wanted to retire to Montpelier, France. He'd made a ton of money, none of it honestly, but Frank wanted to enjoy the fruits of his labor as he put it. However, just four months later, Frank was taken in by Interpol agents. Frank claims the trial didn't even last two days. He was found guilty and allegedly treated poorly, left in a cell with nothing aside from a bucket and he wasn't given any food. What he illustrated sounded more like a medieval dungeon and he describes going mad in his cell, talking to himself to hear the sound of a human voice. He supposedly served six months in a French prison, then six months in a Swedish prison before he was deported back to the United States. Yet justice couldn't stop Frank either. He was awaiting trial in the Atlanta prison, but missing several papers. Because of this, the guards began to suspect that he was an undercover prison inspector. So that's exactly who Frank pretended to be, if you can believe this. He still had telephone privileges. So Frank called a loyal friend in the area and asked her to give him papers to prove that he was actually an inspector and not a prisoner. Since the guards suspected that anyway, they simply let him go, walk out a free man before he was finally caught again in New York City and turned over to the FBI. After finally serving his time, Frank did what we've seen quite a few white collar criminals do and decided to start helping the FBI instead. On his website, he presents himself as a professional who's worked with them for over four decades. At the end of Frank's book, he explains, I haven't changed. All the needs that made me a criminal are still there. I have simply found a legal and socially acceptable way to fulfill those needs. Frank Abagnale in reality is still a bumblebee personality, flying where he isn't supposed to fly at all and making a pot of honey on the side. Before I move forward, I do wanna note that almost all of the information we've heard thus far comes directly from Frank himself. And I did read his book in its entirety for this episode. Frank's story became legendary and it is really impressive. Articles on Business Insider have listed out his crimes, explaining that nowadays he receives about $15,000 per lecture that he hosts. As early as 1978, he was called the con man's con man, presenting Frank's story as fact. The movie based on Frank's book, Catch Me If You Can, featured Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, and it was a massive success, ensuring that Frank's wild adventures would live on for years to come. Frank has become both infamous and famous, depending on who you ask. However, there were people that have started to doubt his story and certain aspects of it did seem a little bit too good to be true or simply too fantastical. Passing the bar exam after only three tries, not needing a medical license to work as an on-call doctor, plus the sheer amount of checks he must've cashed, some of it just doesn't add up. Over the years, Frank did admit that he may have exaggerated a few things. Back in 1978, he was downright called out for not having any evidence to his claims whatsoever but Frank said he'd intentionally used incorrect names in his book due to embarrassment, and he doubted anyone would actually verify his story. His book started including the disclaimer that events had been altered and Frank's co-writer, Stan Redding, had dramatized and exaggerated things to tell a story, not just a biography. The LA Times speculated back in 2002 that we may never know the full truth about Frank and his stories, even after all these years. And as it turns out, we actually do know the truth. And before we get into this absolute bombshell of a reveal, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. 
big wireless providers forget that families come in all shapes and sizes. That's why Mint Mobile decided to shake up the wireless industry with their brand new modern family plan. Each line starts at just 15 bucks a month and you only need two lines to get started. No matter how big or small your family is, you deserve to save on your wireless service. And I think you guys know, I've been using Mint Mobile for almost two years at this point. Has it really been that long? I think it is. And I've had an amazing time. It's one of the first times that it's clear, concise. I know exactly what I'm paying for every time. And the service that I get is excellent. It's so great, in fact, that my personal phone and my business phone are with Mint and all of my employees' business phones are also with Mint Mobile as well. It's awesome. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate, whether you're buying for one or a family. And at Mint, families start at just two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Plus, Mint Mobile's modern family plan lets you mix and match data plans so everyone gets the right amount of data for them. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, including getting into the modern family plan, make sure you go to mintmobile.com MLM. That's mintmobile.com MLM. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com MLM. Now, when it's getting to the end of the day and you've had a long and busy day, sometimes cooking up or even thinking up what you're gonna cook for dinner can be a daunting task. And I know because I have struggled with it for many years, but that's been going away thanks to HelloFresh. And it's all about convenience with HelloFresh. Not only do the ingredients come pre-portioned so you're not overbuying or wasting food, but it's easier than ever to get filling meals on the table in a snap with options like family-friendly and quick and easy recipes. I've personally been really into the one pot meals. If I see anything that's one pan or one pot, I don't know what it is, I'm going through a phase, but it's easy cleanup, it's delicious, and it just, I don't know, I just feel really cool that I could make everything in like one like pot or pan, that's just me. Plus I hate cleaning after cooking, so that's probably a part of it too. And with HelloFresh, by the way, it's not just one pot, one pan things. You can pick from over 50 weekly options. You can skip weeks when you need to, change delivery dates, update your preferences. You can do everything within their easy to use app as well. And that includes customizing your favorite dishes with their new Hello Custom offerings by swapping out one protein or side for another, upgrading to a more luxe experience, or even adding a protein to a veggie meal. That means more choices, more variety, and more meals truly tailored to you. So make sure to go to hellofresh.com slash MLM16 and use code MLM16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's hellofresh.com slash MLM16 and use code MLM16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. In 2021, science journalist Alan C. Logan released a bombshell. Almost none of the story is real. Back in 2020, he published a book about a medical con man, Robert Vernon Spears, who was the suspect of a 1959 airline disaster. Logan noticed the similarities between Spears and Frank and decided to investigate. Sure enough, he too learned that nothing was actually verifiable. But the damning piece of evidence? Frank couldn't have committed those crimes. He was in jail almost the whole time. Logan includes a handy chart in his book about Frank, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, that shows exactly where Frank was and when. To summarize, Frank did pretend to be a pilot in order to deadhead, but it wasn't for Pan Am, nor nearly as long as he'd lead you to believe. In much of that time, he was actually in the US Navy before he went back to scamming. When Frank was scamming, he was stealing cars or committing check fraud, hurting individuals or small businesses, as opposed to major corporations that are a bit harder to feel sympathetic for. 
Then when Frank claims he was pretending to be a doctor at 18, he was in prison. Lawyer, professor, no, prison. He also wasn't in other countries such as the prisons in France or Sweden for quite as long as he claimed either. The only thing Frank and the verifiable timeline seem to agree on is the fact that he had a 12 year sentence in Virginia starting at age 23. Logan claims he was able to discover all of this through public records and newspaper clippings, as well as interviews with people that knew Frank, such as flight attendant Paula Parks, who met Frank in 1969, shortly before his incarceration. According to Logan, what really happened was that dressed as TWA Transworld Airlines pilot, which he only did for a few weeks, Frank befriended Paula Parks. He followed her all over the Eastern seaboard, identified her work schedule through deceptive means and essentially stalked the woman. Given the way Frank spoke about women in his book, I honestly can't say I'm surprised by this. I read through much of Logan's book as well and it seems far more feasible. Sure, someone could make the argument that Paula is making up her story too and we may never know the full truth of Frank's story, but at least Paula's story can be corroborated and it actually sounds possible whereas aspects to Frank's book don't make any logistical sense as to how they could work. Within Logan's book, Paula's descriptions of Frank are eerie to say the least. While I won't summarize the entire book, chapter four is the one I found most alarming and it sheds a lot of light on who Frank really was, according to Paula anyway. She says she regrets ever giving Frank her phone number and she'd never wanted to in the first place. Paula describes landing at her home base airport in New Orleans. When I returned home to New Orleans airport, he was right there waiting for me. He knew where I was going to exit and was there with a gleaming convertible. This time he had a bunch of plastic flowers in hand. It was so weird. Who gives someone a handful of plastic flowers? Immediately, I wondered if they had been retrieved from a local cemetery. He wouldn't take no for an answer when Paula attempted to refuse his expensive gifts, took her shopping frequently and continued to follow her city to city. Paula says she feels she was stalked and I do pretty much agree with her. Not only was Frank just greeting her at her home base and being a bit pushy, but he was following her around the United States. By the sounds of things, he was no master con man whatsoever, but a persistent creepy guy who was eerily obsessed with his depiction of women in his novel and eerily obsessed with Paula in real life. Yet Frank's cons weren't just alarming, but he really managed to get close to people. At first, I believe that Frank became close to her parents in the sense of treating them like in-laws or extended family. But according to Paula, Frank actually moved in with her parents. After the first time Frank visited with her family, they spoke casually about giving Frank some fishing lessons, only for him to turn up on their doorstep unannounced, saying he was ready for those fishing lessons now. I was really worried there was something off about him. He had been stalking me and now my parents. It was just not normal behavior, Paula insists. When Frank came to her parents that day, they graciously offered him in for a drink. That turned into dinner and dinner turned into place to stay for the night. He'd steamrolled over them, taking advantage of her parents' generosity. This is an extremely common pattern of behavior I've seen in scammers, slowly but surely taking and taking from caring people, getting them to push boundaries just a bit further until they have nothing left. That place to stay extended into Paula's mom basically giving Frank Paula's old room, cooking for him, cleaning up after him and giving him keys to the house. Paula recalls that time in her life as a creepy Hollywood thriller, a strange man she hardly knew sleeping in her bed, having moved into her parents' house and worming his way into their lives. Before long, Frank started dating my cousin. I could hardly believe it. Mama said it was my loss, Paula adds. Apparently, after a short while, when Frank realized that Paula wasn't interested, he turned his attention toward the local community and her family members as his new targets instead. In his book, Frank insists he only stole from corporations like Pan Am. They can spare a few million, right? But in Logan's book, he writes that Frank stole money from the very people that offered him generosity. 
He'd write bad checks in their name, taking some $1,200 from Paula's family and more from local businesses in the area, one of which sold fire safety equipment. Once the Baton Rouge Police Department learned about Frank's actions, he skipped town, though Frank was eventually caught for petty theft and impersonating a co-pilot. The actual story isn't nearly as fantastical as Frank's version of events, but I find it far more believable and awful. There's a big difference between stealing from corporations with insurance and small mom and pop shops that are just trying to get by, feed their families and provide for a community. While Frank is largely celebrated as some magnificent con man that truly personifies the word, confidence man, he's far more despicable than I initially thought going into this. Of course, Logan recognizes he's not the only one to break the story either. Back in 1978, Stephen Hall, a rookie journalist working for the San Francisco Chronicle, debunked some of Frank's claims about stealing money from a deposit Dropbox. He'd allegedly dressed as a security guard and had people leave their deposits with him. This tale was debunked all the way back in the 1970s. And two months later, another journalist named Ira Perry even did a line-by-line debunking of the story in the Daily Oklahoman when Frank was set to visit Oklahoma City for a talk. In those days, a Pan Am spokesperson even told Ira Perry, quote, I've checked with the security people and everyone here and it never happened. This is the first time we've heard of this and we would have heard or at least remembered if it had happened. You don't forget $2.5 million in bad checks. I'd say this guy is as phony as a $3 bill. Yet it's still Frank's phony story that sells. His book has been debunked. He didn't even really commit all that many cons until he was caught. It seems like the greatest con of all is how many people believe he was an amazing scammer to the point that he's associated with the FBI. Maybe for that, he actually is an amazing scammer. This con man conned us all about his con, creating a kind of conception. Or maybe he's just a disgusting man who stalks women and refers to them in a seriously grotesque manner in his novel, fantasizing about lives he's never lived. But I guess that's up for you to decide. And with that being said, that's where we're gonna end today's very interesting episode of Multilevel Mondays. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you wanna connect with me outside these episodes, please make sure you go to that description box, whether you are listening to this on YouTube or in podcast format, click the Linktree link and it'll have all my links for all of my social media and projects I'm involved in. Thank you so much for spending some of your time here with me today. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.